Welcome to the Hat Soil Health Podcast, a production of Hoosier Ag Today and made possible by the Indiana Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative, a program of the Indiana Conservation Partnership. Once a month, we'll spotlight the many efforts around Indiana by CCSI and its many partners to improve soil health on Indiana cropland. Here's the host of the Hat Soil Health Podcast, Eric Pfeiffer. This is the Hat Soil Health Podcast. Thanks for joining us. And we've got a great show today. We're coming to you on location again. Last month, we came to you from the Indiana Farm Equipment and Technology Expo. Uh, we don't have quite the live studio audience here, but there are plenty of people in the building here at the Fort Wayne Farm Show. And we've got a great lineup today. We're going to be talking about, in previous podcasts, we've been talking about how to get started. How do you get started? What are the costs to get started? Well, what are the benefits once you've gotten started and you've had a long-term soil health system. We're going to talk about that on today's show, and I've got some great people to talk about it with. First off, Mike Whirling. He's a Decatur, Indiana farmer, and he's been doing cover crops for quite some time. We're going to get with Mike and also Stephanie McLean, the Indiana NRCS State Soil Health Specialist. Thank you both so much for joining us. And, and Mike, let's start with you. Give us a little bit of a background, where you farm, what you farm, and that type of thing. Okay, I farm on the St. Mary's River uh, with a Decatur, Indiana address. Um, my, the farm was settled by my great-great-grandfather in 1847, so I think that's really a cool thing about it. And I'm really happy to be building soil health and continuing on from where he started. Stephanie, give us a little bit of a background with you, where you've been, what you've done, and, and what brings you to this role here within RCS. So like you said, uh, I, I'm the state soil health specialist. Uh, for NRCS here in Indiana. I've been working in that capacity for about a year and a half now um, and it's been a, a great honor and a wonderful privilege to be here in Indiana uh, working with uh, farmers on uh, soil health cropping systems, uh, utilizing no-till and cover crops to make those improvements. Um, before I moved to Indiana I worked at various other places around the country uh, spending most of my time primarily in the state of Minnesota, which is where I was born and raised. Um, and I did work for NRCS in those areas. I was a, actually a district conservationist um, in the county in which I grew up. So before I came down here, I was uh, working in the same county uh, where my dad farmed um, and I lived in a, on a small acreage uh, about four or five miles from my parents' house and uh, about four or five miles from my in-laws' house. And uh, then had this great opportunity to pick up my family and move down here to Indiana and work focus more on soil health. And a state that's really leading the way with Absolutely, soil yes, yes, this is true. You're right. And and now Eric I failed because I should have been the one that said that. <laughs> hey, I've been doing this for a few months now. I've picked up on a few things. Well, again, we're here at the Fort Wayne Farm Show, uh, and you guys have a great booth set up here between NRCS and also the Allen County uh, Soil Conservation District here. And, and Mike, talk a little bit about what's going on here at the Farm Show to bring some awareness to the folks that are coming through, because there are a ton of people at this show. We've got farmers, and we've got the public alike coming through here, and they're learning a little bit more about soil health and conservation. Right, yeah, the, the Fort Wayne Farm Show is one of the largest indoor ones in the country. I think it's ranked in the top five, maybe. And the great part about it is this is a, a very urban area also. So we, especially on the Wednesday night, we have a lot of urban people coming through, a lot of, with their kids, a lot of FFAs, uh, the classes, 4-Hers and all that. So that's really nice. Um, 
the the big iron is the most popular thing for them to see. That's up that's upstairs in the expo center. You know, to, to be able to get up in a combine in a tractor is really a, a cool thing for most people. Um, we're down. The, we're in the lower level here, um, where more of the smaller booths are. Uh, we have it set up with uh, cover crops that we've we've started and have on display, so we can speak about cover crops, what we have uh, going, what we can use on our soil, on our farms. And, and Stephanie, you were just having conversations here right before we went on. It seems like a lot of people are coming through, getting interested in this idea. It, it sounds like the more this picks up, obviously we just mentioned Indiana leads the country in a lot of these statistics with cover crops. Yep, but yep. Even more people are starting to gain interest in this. And are you getting more questions about that from folks around the state? Absolutely. Um, like Mike said, when we when we look at the booth that we have here and you walk around the rest of the farm show, this is one of the few booths where we actually have living, growing plants in here. And so that just draws people's eyes. Earlier today, um, when I was standing there visiting with someone, I asked them uh, if they were uh, farming and had they used cover crops before. And they said, no, I just really like looking at something green. And so, again, this person was more than likely uh, an urban individual living in town, but enjoyed the fact that we have something growing and living in, in this booth. And so what we're starting to see, like you said, is that these cover crops are piquing people's interests beyond just the actual farm operation. You're having landowners who are more and more interested in these cover crops growing on their fields um, to the point where we have um, women's learning circle meetings or other landowner type meetings where these landowners want to find a way to have a better communication or better conversation with their operators on putting cover crops in their fields. Or we see um, consumers uh, being very interested in knowing if there's cover crops growing in those fields or I'm just trying to think about other, other types of industry that are playing a role. Um, for example, and this is one that's a little bit off topic, it's not the farm show, but uh, I had the opportunity to work a soil health booth at the National FFA convention, and that was working in partnership with an organization that's now looking at using sustainable cotton in, in their production systems. And the sustainable means using cover, they had defined it as reducing disturbance, using cover crops, trying to look at those types of things to sustainably produce their cotton. So when the market starts to show that there's that interest, um, that means that our consumers are asking those questions. This is the Hat Soil Health Podcast presented by the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative. We're here at the Fort Wayne Farm Show and I'm talking with Mike Whirling, a Fort Wayne farmer, actually in Decatur, Indiana, and also Stephanie McLean. She's the NRCS State Soil Health Specialist. Mike, let's let's move forward here and let's talk about some of the things we wanted to get to here around, okay, we've talked about how we get things started. What is it once it's established? What are some of the benefits? But we are going to take you back to when you did start. I assume that because you, you're right up against that river that a lot of this was uh, when you started doing these conservation efforts and, and you mentioned, you know, continuing on from your family that's had this for years, that it probably had a lot to do with being right there against that watershed and, and wanting to do the best you could do to help protect that that source, right? Yeah, when I started, uh, well, I've been, pl I've been farming my whole life, you know, since I could walk and go out with Dad. Um, the The reason that started me down the, the cover crop and soil health road is erosion control. 
um, I have some highly erodible ground that runs right into the St. Mary's River. And I really, really hated to see that water taking the dirt with it down to the river. So that was my first, uh, first uh, ways I started uh, planting some cover crops, uh, more grass waterways, more filter strips to keep the soil on my ground, on my acreage. Uh, and once I started that and started no-tilling corn, uh, it got so much easier when I started planting uh, the cover crop mixes instead of single species to get the corn to emerge, to get it to be strong and healthy, that uh, I just kept going. Uh, that all started back in the early 1990s. Uh, I started no-tilling soybeans and wheat in the late uh, 1980s. So it's been a long road and it's probably, back then we had nobody to talk to. I had a group of people, a group of guys that I knew that were kind of doing the same thing and we learned as we went. We Basically we probably learned more from our mistakes than we did from our, our successes. So it was really a tough road. Now with the, being able to talk to these farmers and, or even the urban people as they come through the booth here and share that knowledge is really a good thing to do. It it's really gets me going. And as we, as we go and we, we talk about going through and, and adding this for those benefits, you mentioned you started this back in the early 90s. So you're a ways into this now. At, at what point in the process did you really start to look at it and say, you know what, now that I'm in year X, yeah, all, all of this is paid off now. All of the work that we put into it at the beginning, now I'm really beginning to see the positive benefits from this. Yeah. My wife, uh, Judy, um, she would, when I was planting, she'd uh, bring uh, lunch out and, and I'd get out and stand a little bit and talk to her and kick the dirt and look what I was doing. Um, she said that I was always apprehensive, always thinking about what I was doing uh, up until about uh, oh, five, six years ago. And she said, when I started planting into green cover crops, you know, planting green without terminating, without killing them first, she said my whole attitude changed and my whole outlook changed that she noticed, and that's her favorite story to tell these days that when I started planting it in a green and learning that, that it was so easy that things just flowed along then. So that, that was a really great thing. Wow, I, that, that's, a, that's a really neat story. I, yeah. I enjoy hearing that and thinking that, you know, that apprehension goes away and you're just able to kind of work into that a lot better. Yeah. Um, one of the things I was going to ask about, Mike, or kind of bring up was that idea of, you know, as soon as you started using cover crops in that rotation, primarily for erosion control, you saw that benefit pretty immediately, yes, right? I mean, right. I, I think sometimes people forget about the idea that if we're, if we're putting our cover crops out there for erosion control and we're successfully stopping erosion, that is an immediate payback or at least partially an immediate payback. And so, you know, I, it's hard to put value on soil that you didn't lose. But I think we really need to think about those values in those situations because land, land ain't free and it, and it certainly ain't cheap. Um, and, and so thinking about not losing that soil or losing our organic matter or not losing that productivity because of that, can we see those benefits, benefits sooner? Another part of it, not only was I not losing my soil, I was gaining it 
from the wind blown, especially through the wintertime, um, when I'm downwind from some neighbors, um, the, the upwind people for me, when my snow was turning brown, that wasn't my soil I was getting on the snow, that was others. So I actually was gaining soil on the, at that process. You, you know what we call that in Minnesota, right? <laughs> snurt? Really? Snow dirt, yeah, snurt. <laughs> Didn't know there was a term. It is. It, it, it is. Yes. She's trying to bring these things to Indiana with her. Yeah. That's great. No, we don't. We let the snurts let, stay, let the stay snurts up stay there. there. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, but interestingly, um, about a year or so ago, I saw a, a little YouTube or a, a podcast or a little blog or something from Steve Groff, uh, Cover Crop Innovators and some of those other things from Pennsylvania. And he was somewhere up in the north I can't remember if it was South Dakota Minnesota North Dakota somewhere up there and there was some snurt and he collected the soil that was on the snow and did a soil test on it and we always you know we talk about it we say when that soil blows away and we have our snurt in the road ditches right or we have we have that sediment that clogs up the 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 drainage ditch or you know that bridge abutment where all that soil uh, settles we talk about that being you know good soil and we're losing that but when Steve did that soil test the nutrients that were in that soil were high I, I can't remember and I can find it for you Eric if you'd Please like do yeah um, but uh, the, the that soil test was high and that was the stuff that left the field taking nutrients when your soil leaves anything that's bound to that soil your nitrogen your phosphorus it takes it with it so you're losing your organic matter and then you're losing your productivity and that you're losing the best part of our our fields with erosion with that loss of that topsoil so um, it was really interesting that he did that and just said we talk about this being the best part of our field but now we know when you lose that you don't lose the unproductive subsoil you're losing the productive topsoil, the stuff that we can't really replace. Or it doesn't, through the weathering process, it doesn't come back very quick. Through a soil health process, we can build some pretty healthy soil. We can. We have, we have in our booth here an animated worm, SK worm, for um, uh, scientific knowledge worm is his name. And one of his statements is, or one of his questions is, when we put it on the interactive for the kids, um, how long does it take to build a one inch of topsoil by nature? And his answer is 1,000 years. Um, and I think, I believe that comes from Darwin's first uh, studies. Um, I think he revised that later on in his life, but we know we can build it a lot faster now when we're using no-till and cover crops and high residue management that uh, that we can, I know I can build my organic matter. I've, I've raised that already um, 3%, almost 3% from where I started. So uh, in the last uh, 10 years probably is the, the main organic matter growth. Again, you're listening to the Hat Soil Health Podcast from the Fort Wayne Farm Show. I'm with Stephanie McLean, Indiana USDA NRCS State Soil Health Specialist, and also Mike Whirling from Decatur, Indiana. He's a farmer and he's also with the Allen County Soil and Water Conservation District. And this is the Hat Soil Health Podcast presented by CCSI, the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative. Stephanie, just a little while ago, you were doing a presentation here at the Farm Show and I, I heard you talking about mixes and uh, what really the cost. You, you, one of your slides said, are mixes always more expensive? 
and it's that's not really the case, right? No. Um, thinking that a mix is always going to be more expensive is a misconception because we're thinking that adding more species is going to jack that price up. Um, but really what tends to happen is as you add more species to that mix, you can reduce how much of each species you need in that mix and you can kind of keep that cost low. Um, we see that over and over again um, when we have we look at one single species or maybe one or two species and when you have one species you have to seed it at a higher rate to meet your objectives and when you when you put it in that mix you can lower that one species down and then add some others and, and we can we can see a cost savings. It doesn't always happen that way but Many times over, we can see that benefit of having the diversity, but also seeing a little bit of a cost savings by having more species there. I've had many people stop here and ask why we have all them species up on our booth. There's, there's 17 right behind us here, and I have planted all them in one field at a time. And they say, well, why do you want to do that? And so my question to them is, if you ate potatoes at every meal, three times a day, all you had was potatoes, how would you be feeling? But I'd it, feel a little heavy myself. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. So the diversity of the plants are feeding the, the different microbes, the different soil biology, the, the soil organisms. So by adding the salads in and uh, the, the meats and, the, and uh, fruits, we get so much better. So it really helps the diversity of our soil. We, you know, we've uh, got folks stopping by. This is great. I love having this here at this at this event. We've got little girl, little girl, just stopped by and gave me a little uh, sticker. That's that's yeah. great. Is that a tattoo there? Or? It might be <laughs> temporary though. Uh, Eric's getting a tat. I can tell. Um, so, Mike, one of the things I wanted to add about too, uh, thinking about diversity in our cropping systems, we always look at trying to reduce our risk. And so, when you add more species to that to that cover crop mix, um, you can reduce your risk because sometimes a cover crop may not grow well in one part of the field or another part of the field, but if you have a couple different species in there, something else will step up and fill that gap. And um, and so, again, that's just a way to, to try to, again, increase the, that growth and reducing that risk overall, I think is a good way to think about it. With the 16-way mixes we put in or whatever, um, we, the seeds per square foot is the same as if we would seed uh, single species probably. But by sometimes you get maybe a square foot that in there that doesn't have much growth in it, which is also a good thing. I love going out there. Them are the places when you have the, the, the tall growth in a cover crops in a field, you go out and you find a place that's a little bare. It's not bare of um, insects, of soil life. They're, they teem to them. Some, some places need sunshine. The, the beetles are in there. The other uh, crawling things love them, bear spaces. So it doesn't have to be totally covered. <laughs> you make an interesting point, Mike, I think, because um, the reason, the thing that I was asked to speak about here today was cover crop options and seeding your cover crops and the different options that you have. And, and one of the things that we hear a lot about when we think about uh, cover crop options when you're broadcasting your seed either your aerial application or your high boy seeding, anything that's broadcasting, so you're not drilling it in the ground. Different than this broadcasting, right? Yeah, 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 yeah different. Yeah, okay, yeah. I wanted to make sure. Not I'm, radio I'm still broadcast. a novice at this, so I just wanted to make sure, okay. 
we're we're like throwing the seed out there with a, with yeah. a, um, a a high boy or a spinner spreader or some other tool like that, including an airplane. When we have those broadcast seeding, a lot of people are are talking about how they feel that 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 seed is it's too patchy. They don't like how it comes up. But I do wonder if some of that patchiness uh, can occur more often on soils that aren't healthy enough to really take that cover crop mix at the right time of that season, or, or two, is that patchiness just something that part of that field is able to grow that cover crop right away and that other part of those other spots aren't able to, aren't able to grow it? And, and you just talked about patchiness kind of being something that you it's, like. It's a good thing, yeah, I agree, I think. So I, I think that's an interesting thing because we always see that as a, it's not as beautiful in, in straight rows as a drill, but maybe we're getting that we're getting a benefit out there yeah. still. It's interesting you're talking about parts of the field that maybe don't grow as well. Um, I have a lot of eroded clay knobs on my fields that over the years have become eroded and they're down to yellow clay. Um, I believe myself, and I've had soil scientists on my field that I said one of the greatest. Con uh, greatest things ever told about me, the compliment, is when he took a, a piece of the soil, I put my soil pit in a, in a nasty place, in a clay knob where not much growth. His, the soil scientist told me that he would have, if he had to classify that soil today, the soil type, he would have to change it from what originally was because there's a dark cast, a dark tint of soil in my yellow clay uh, blount soils. So by farming the knobs better, I have increased my yields, I've increased the amount of returns I get on the same land that I have, the same acreage. And, and those clay <laughs> knobs, you're, you're able to stop the erosion, you're able to probably get, you're getting more roots in the soil, and with less disturbance, we're getting more water infiltration, so we're having a more resilient cropping system, even on those places that probably at some point in time burned up every single summer. They yeah. dried out and they, they were never produced anything. So this summer, Stephanie, you were on my field for a field day there. Yes. You and actually Barry Fisher were in a soil pit, in which we just heard from you at your presentation upstairs that uh, August had uh, seven or nine inches of rain for us, what was it? I think it was 7.8 inches. In, that was average rainfall for the Fort Wayne area, August uh, 2018. So I didn't piece out what dates that all came in. I just looked at the average rainfall for the month, and it was 7.8 inches. So the normal years for August was 3 inches, 3.2 or whatever it yep. was. So you were down in the soap that we had dug 5 feet deep, and the water table was, what, running about 4 feet right then, 3.5? <laughs> My feet were very wet that day. <laughs> yeah. So, to get to the point, um, did I, I think the, the earthworm channels and my root channels following down in that, the root tunnels, you know, and over year after year after year without getting disturbed by tillage, um, it's turning that same black tint deeper in my soils. Um, we could get down to the four foot there where you got, where the roots were still growing, the earthworms were still going down there, down to that water table that day. What did, what's your opinion on them black channels that were in there? Did you recognize that or how'd that look? Yes, um, so yes, I did see those in that pit. Um, if I wasn't getting stuck in the, in the muck with my boots in the bottom. Uh, but what was interesting looking at those soils in that soil pit was that 
you see these dark tints of, of, of um, organic matter and it, like, it looks like dark soil just kind of going way down into those profiles. Um, it's these earthworm channels when they're taking that organic matter down into those areas and then as they're going in and out through that through that earthworm channel they're lining those things those channels with their castings and this dark organic matter this nutrient rich earthworm poop casting wait we're going to bleep that out you're, you're allowed to say poop it's okay <laughs> excrement <laughs> waste we just can't say some of the other words right um, but yeah, so these, these, these channels are lined with this, this nutrient-rich um, um, earthworm poop, and, and then the plant roots, that's where they want to grow. And so the, the wheat crop, we were looking at a wheat field, right? It was oats. oats. Yeah, that was yes, oats. Yes, it was that oats. It was a small grain, so we had oats. So those oat roots are going to go down that channel, and then they're going to get nutrient-dense water from those channels. The cover crops that are growing down there, they're gonna get. They're gonna grow down those channels also because it's the path of least resistance. It's easy for those crop roots and those and those cover crop roots to to grow into those channels. And then as they're growing in those channels, um, they don't have to expend as much energy to get a deeper root system. But they're also getting nutrient-rich water that they, that helps them grow. Those micronutrients that we find in those systems. That's not coming from Mike's fertilizer applications. That's coming from his his. Uh, I guess his earthworm applications yeah. i guess is how you'd like to say my earthworm workers yeah, my, your, my, your, your my workers. soil workers but uh the, to see some of those roots that far deep and just how they will fill up the, the root hairs and the fine fine root hairs will fill up those channels and just kind of grow into there and then grow through the channel and into the rest of that soil um carbon the plant pumps carbon down through that root and into that soil to feed our soil microbes and that carbon is building organic matter four feet down. He, uh, he Mike farm in the top six inches of his soil. Mike doesn't farm in the top foot of his soil. Mike farms in four feet of soil, and his roots use every foot of it. So. And I remember when you were out there that day, or you or Barry Fisher was holding one of the, uh, he picked loose one of them darker channels, them darker columns. And one of the gentlemen in the crowd asked, well, yeah, that's true right there. It, there's, it's darker right there, but how about all around it, you know, that I have just one of them in there. And I think Barry's response was that, watch this, so he picked another one away, and there's another one, and there's another one behind it. They were almost touching. An earthworm, when they start moving through those soil profiles, and we aren't disturbing that soil continuously with tillage, that channel is maintained. And then they just move someplace else, or another earthworm, or another worm hatches and makes another channel. and. And, and in, a, in a healthy soil, we can have how many hundreds of earthworms per, per acre or thousands of earthworms per acre. So think about that. It's, it's, we want to maximize that nutrient-dense earthworm channel. So to do that, we want to maximize the amount of earthworms that are out there. And to make that happen, we have to take out that disturbance and give them a give them a place to move up and down through that profile and then feed them. A Having more mellow type soil to get mellow. through, right? Yeah, a mellow type soil to get through. That's a good way to say it, yeah. On my soils, um, if I take a shovel full of dirt, especially in a radish uh, hole, a radish uh, area, a root zone, if I can't get six or ten earthworms in a shovel full, that's, I feel kind of bad that something's wrong. <laughs> 
He hangs his head. <laughs> so so it's either it's either too wet, too dry, too cold, or too hot. <laughs> you know that the earthworms have have gone deeper and dormant. Sure. So interestingly, I was out. Um, it, it wasn't on your farm, Mike, uh, but I was out on another field, and we were doing some soil health assessments. That's one of the things that NRCS is working on to be working with our farmers and getting in their fields and talking about uh, soil health resource assessments hands-on assessments that we can do, hopefully with our farmers in the field, because me knowing about or understanding soil health and seeing what things look like, that's great, but it really makes a difference with our farmers when they see these changes happening on their field. And it's really neat to see, um, starting with a system where there isn't as much structure or aggregate stability, and they start taking out disturbance, they start adding cover crops, and then you start counting earthworms starting from before you do these things until you get into the system, counting your earthworms, looking for earthworm channels, and to see that difference, it's its one of the things that farmers know they're on the right track when they start to see that life coming back. But I was in a, I dug a, we dug a soil core, and it was like a one foot by one foot by one foot right at the soil surface, and uh, so you got a cubic foot of soil. And it was, oh, late May or early June, and it was down in the southern part of Indiana, and it was hot, and it was dry, and it was a uh, cornfield that had crimson clover in it, and we dug that soil, that cubic foot of soil, and we counted the earthworms, and there were over 150 earthworms in that soil, that crimson clover, and that active soil condition. They just loved being there. And, and it was, I mean, it was, it was dry. They needed rain, but that crimson clover was keeping that soil in good condition and the earthworms wanted to stay further up in that soil profile where they, they didn't go down deep. So Mike, let's put a bow on this and let's talk about, I mean obviously you've been doing this for a long time. Uh, you probably have some neighbors that maybe haven't been unless unless you've talked all your neighbors into it. Hopefully you have, but, but, but talk about what is your farm getting and perhaps from a yield perspective you can tell me what are you getting that some of your neighbors that aren't doing the same practices, what are they missing out on? Well, um, number one, I guess I would like to say that the, the, the gentleman coming through here that I'm talking to, they can get results immediately from the cover crop, from the no-till, but it takes years to get to a level that's, that's higher soil health. Um, my neighbors, um, I'm kind of in an island. Uh, you know, what do they say? The, the prophet never can speak at home or there's a saying to that effect. Um, I'm, I'm, my farm, personally, I have a lower input. My father did, my grandfather before me. So I have, we have never approached the highest yields we can get. I know I can get 260 bushel corn because I get it on my test plots. I, I, the infield advantage, my nit replicated nitrogen trials, I can get 260 bushel corn. The, but there's a difference between what... I want to say, or what the coffee shop, what wins at the coffee shop, the most bushels, or that wins at the bank is the most yields per acre, the most returns of dollar, most return money per acre. So my returns per acre are, they level out at about 180 bushel of corn. So I know where my fertilizer level is to get to that level, my fertility, and I know that's about 125 pounds of added nitrogen for that year. Um, it's it's lower than the tri-state fertilizer recommendations. I'm mineralizing more uh, nutrients in my soil to get to that level. So 
the 180 bushel corn is about my um, my sweet spot for returns per acre. So and soybeans, I'm I'd like to say 50, but it's I I mean I usually get 50. I'm usually closer to to 60 or so uh, between 50 and 60. So that's a great spot also with the inputs I'm putting in there. Mike Whirling with the Allen County Soil and Water Conservation District, a Decatur County or Decatur, Indiana farmer. Stephanie McLean, NRCS, thank you guys so much for doing this. Uh, it's been a great show here in Fort Wayne. You have a great booth educating folks that are coming through. Except for right now, I think I scared them all off. I'll get out of your hair, out of your hair, so that they'll they'll start coming back. But uh, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Eric. I enjoyed my time here today. I really, it was it was great visiting with you, Mike. Yeah, I'm glad you can come. It's a great time. This has been the Hat Soil Health Podcast, brought to you by the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative. We'll have more next month on the Hat Soil Health Podcast. This has been a production of Hoosier Ag Today, Indiana's leading farm network.